gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Might a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're going to be talking about B2B marketing lessons from Succession and how to make cool when you have bad bosses. Everything I've done in my life, I've done for my children. I know I've made mistakes. But I've always tried to do the best by them because I love them. Have you thought about the possibility that your children are actually scared of you? Today we're talking about succession and we are joined by the amazing chief strategy and marketing officer of Airship. Tom, how are you? I'm well. Thank you very much. Good to see you again, Ian. That is Tom Buda, a nine-time CMO and current Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer at Airship, a platform helping brands master mobile app experiences. So excited to chat. We usually chat on other podcasts about slightly different topics, but today we're talking about content and today we're talking about succession. But first, just tell us a little bit about Airship. So Airship is, uh, well, Airship is part of your life. It's part of everybody's life. And the reason I say that is because if anybody here who's listening has a mobile phone, which I expect everybody has at least one, you probably have a number of apps that you use all day, every day. And Airship powers a lot of those apps with software that help you get rewards, help you get notified of changes in your flight status or your bank account or your transaction status, or your delivery status, helps you set preferences, helps you onboard appropriately, helps you find out about new stuff, and things like that. And Tom is a multi-time CMO. He has made a lot of cool stuff in his day. And, uh, you know, Tom, I know you're many, many versions of a marketer, but I think your content marketing might be your best vertical because you're so freaking good at it. And that's why we wanted to bring you on uh, today to talk about how to make cool stuff and what lessons we take from Succession. So why the heck Succession? Why do you want to talk about this show? Uh, it's it's a fascinating show. And it, it's one of those that episode after episode, you still can't believe that people do what they do uh, in the environment within which they find themselves. And in many cases, they can't get out of their own way. When will you be ready to step down? I don't know. And in other cases, they try to do something, and, but they never finish it. So I think there's a lot to learn. Plus, it's entertaining, which is definitely what this, this series of jobs have been about over, over the years. Yeah. When you floated the idea of, of doing succession for this show, I thought it, it was um, a great 
idea for remarkable because every character in this show is so remarkable. You just can't believe, like you have to talk to somebody about them and just how dysfunctional they all are. The key here is act like a happy family. And so real feeling. And truly, you despise them all equally and you love them all equally. And it's such a bizarre thing. I, I So I generally, personally, don't really like the genre. I call it wealth porn. But like this genre of show, the like succession and billions and and these type of shows that, that talk about these like gigantic head fund managers and all this sort of stuff and like kind of demonize business in a way that's like not hyper-realistic to what the vast majority of us are doing in business day in, day out. Uh, and so this show, I definitely came into it and I did, didn't necessarily want to love it. And oh my, like how gripping is this story? And it's so, so simple. Uh, and we'll get into that here in a second. But I, I think it's a perfect thing to talk about today because they show chaos and dysfunction in a way that feels so real and so lived in and something that we all identify with as soon as you see every single element of these very toxic behaviors. Yeah, I, I had the same exact, I suppose, expectation of not thinking I wanted, I was going to like the show when I first started watching it. In fact, I actually didn't after watching the first or second episode. And then I continued and I got pulled in. So I think a lot of that has to do with just amazing character development. Three years ago, you were still in the nut house. Rehab. Dad, it's called rehab. And yes, I agree with you about the fact that I'm speaking to you today from Manhattan, and um, I happen to have been on Upper Madison Avenue this morning, and, you know, there were already like three celebrity sightings. It's a very different world, right? And that isn't necessarily one that many people can relate to. Yeah, and every single person in their life deals with succession in some form or fashion, whether, you know, you have a bunch of siblings or no siblings or cousins or nephews or none of that stuff that you deal with this idea of like your parents' things and their life and what they've done, you know, being part of who you are and shaping who you are in both like physical senses, like who gets the couch, who has to clean out, you know, the garage or any of that stuff, or whether it's like more of the emotional baggage. So I think that even though they do take these like very hierarchical sort of positions and all they're dealing with billions of dollars and private jets and all this stuff, that there's something so relatable about four kids who are trying to impress their dad. Dad, come on, what are you doing? and ultimately just carving across thousands of people, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people in their wake as they try to navigate that. Yeah, exactly. And I think also looking at it from the perspective of the parent, as it were, or the, you know, the head of the family, it's a really fascinating choice that certainly my father, I don't think, was ever faced with. Uh, certainly not in his behavior, about which came first, the health of his children and his relationship with them or the family, whatever, you know, business, legacy, name. Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. And um, I always knew what my dad's priorities were, which was us. But in this case in succession. I'm not sure. In fact, I don't think that's the case. So zooming out 
Meredith, what the heck is Succession? Succession is an HBO drama slash comedy series, uh, but it premiered in 2018 and currently has four seasons. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire for this show and many other shows at Caspian Studios. The show stars Brian Cox as Logan Roy, this patriarch of the media company. It's my company. And his children are played by Jeremy Strong, Kieran Culkin, Alan Ruck, and Sarah Snook. Uh, and his kids are named Kendall, Roman, Connor, and Siobhan. The story is uh, Logan Roy, this father, is head of this entertainment media conglomerate called Waystar Royco. Why shouldn't we do all the news? Uh, well, Kim Jong Pop, because that's not how things work in this country. And he's just reached his 80th birthday, and he's sort of considering who's going to take over the company for him, if he's even going to pass it on, period. The obvious choice is his eldest son, Kendall, who's really, like, struggling to find his place and solidify his place as the heir apparent to this company. I think I'm the best option. Oh, right, because you like playing boss? And so the four kids of Logan are basically, meanwhile, uh, vying for a top place in the company as he is sort of aging, not doing well. But the series has won numerous awards, like many, many, many. I counted upwards of 35, if not more, including Emmys, Golden Globe Awards, British Academy Television. And that's because the show had some British writers, which we'll get into, British writers and British actors. Yeah, and I think one of the things that are, are so interesting about succession and about our theme today, which is about making cool stuff with bad bosses and, and how to do that and how to navigate chaos and how to navigate uncertainty and navigating dysfunction. And as a marketer, figuring out a way to break through that and to create something that is meaningful and drives business value and cool and interesting and all that stuff. Give it your best shot. Part of the thing about succession is the show is freaking expensive. And it's not a cheap show to make. There's a ton of really talented people that are on it. And it's the show that you, you look at this and you're like, only HBO could make this. Sometimes it is a big dick competition. Like, I don't know who else could make this show. And it would be even a fraction of as good. And it's just like classic HBO storytelling. So in, in a show, which is so much about... Chaos, and obviously HBO is a media company owned by a larger media company, but in a show that is about a media company that is so just negative and horrible and transactional that it is made by this amazing media company that consistently cranks out hits and they take so much time to support their creators. And I just love that dichotomy. All right. Why did they make the show, Meredith? The idea for the show, uh, Succession, was conceived by the co-creator of Peep Show, this guy named Jesse Armstrong. He came up with the idea in 2016, and it was based off this screenplay that he had written but was never aired, and it was about Rupert Murdoch of Fox News, and he had written in the early 2000s and nothing had really come of it. And so he was inspired by these like very rich people, like the writers are inspired by this, this kind of niche world of these, you know, very, very wealthy people and media power. And so those were the two sort of combining elements that he wanted to work with for the show. Brownstones, water towers, trees, skyscrapers, fighters and Wall Street traders. It was his first solo project and he had pitched it as a showrunner to HBO. 
And Armstrong said it wasn't just Rupert Murdoch who he drew inspiration from for this Roy family. He also looked to the Hearst, uh, Sumner Redstone of Viacom, John Malone of this cable TV firm called TCI, uh, Robert Fitz of Comcast, and so on. He also said he drew on a number of his personal relationships just to make it feel like more personal, more real. And when looking at this world of this like hyper rich family, he and the other team of, you know, his whole team of writers that he assembled, they used these wealth consultants, which I thought was really interesting because they wanted to make this realistic depiction of what life would be like for a family that's like that rich. Money wins. And what's funny is he got a lot of backlash after the pilot episode because he wrote that script himself um, without any help. And so um, he did get some backlash about that because there were elements in it that just wouldn't have happened in reality. Um, But yeah, so things kind of feel more realistic as the show goes on. And so John Brown, who was one of the writers, said... The show can be plush and aspirational, but it also shows the disgusting edges, which I thought was interesting. They really don't shy away from like the really high highs and the low lows. They described it as this like dense world building when they had assembled this group of writers that they kind of overwrote these scripts. And then a lot of the writing didn't make it into the show. So anyway, after the pilot was accepted by HBO, Armstrong brought together this mix of British and American writers, um, including comedy writers, and that they include Lucy Preble, Georgia Pritchett, Tony Roche, and John Brown. These are writers who had previously worked on Veep and The Thick of It. Um, So he had this like powerhouse of writers working behind him, the wealth consultants. And so this whole team really came up with this beautiful, uh, beautiful series. And the the depth is so apparent there are so many scenes that they do in this show where they just gloss over something that some other show would like sit down and explain to you and they're like nope we're just gonna like show you and not tell you and like there's just so many things that you can tell how much world building there is behind all of these characters behind their motivations behind these relationships like and you're catching them in this moment in time and it just feels so unbelievably real the other thing that I think that when you look at the dysfunction of the family is they just can't freaking get anything done because they are constantly undermined and overmined and doing all these things and they don't really know what they want or they sort of know what they want and they struggle to pursue those things and they've been sort of pushed and pulled in this life. And that I think is what it feels like to be a marketer <laughs> where you <laughs> you think at times you're like, I think I know what I want and I think I know what I want to make and I'm trying to get approval for this thing or I think I want to be sitting in this seat or I want to be doing this. Tom, I'm curious, like, how does it feel to you? Did you see yourself in any of those positions? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to, to use this as a platform for this discussion. When you visualize what a future state can look like, sometimes you can feel very alone in that. And so you have to figure out a way to get others to actually not just accept the idea, but in many ways make it their own. And so that means that the way in which you approach the work is to do a couple of things. One is to appeal to what matters to them. And then secondly, to actually use their own vocabulary and their language 
as you are presenting this sort of change path, right? And that there's a lot in that. Yeah, I, I, and, I, and I would love to talk through that. Tell me about the change vocabulary. Yeah, so I actually learned this lesson the hard way. I was uh, very much a change agent uh, at a company, a public company, that had experienced a ton of greatness and had an amazing run, and a bunch of people made a lot of money, only to have kind of existed in their old form longer than they should have. In other words, they didn't evolve. The world is changing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Everything changes. And so what should have been an evolution wound up becoming more of a revolution in terms of how people experienced it inside because of how dramatic the change needed to be. And so even though the board recommended that someone get hired into this role and told the CEO that that needed to happen quickly and I became that person, it still wasn't the CEO's decision because he was one of the very early employees of the company and he rode, drove and rode that whole upward trajectory as well as the decline, right, of the business. So it kind of put his own leadership into a spotlight, which was certainly, um, I would say, understood by the, you know, 4,000 employees at the company. So that made it really, really tricky, right, for me. Mm -hmm. Because I had an agenda that was super clear. I knew exactly what we needed to do. I know who I needed to partner with to help do that. That was all a given, and that was all, um, that was something that I focused on a lot. But having him be a part of that change even if it wasn't entirely a part of it, but he, in fact, had some ownership in it, was really, really important. And so this is where I learned the lesson of, of, of language. So what I mean by that is this. <clears throat> I would speak my language, and I was like, okay, you know, your background, you're a sales guy, obviously you're CEO too, but, like, your background is you're a sales guy. My guy? And so that's your culture. That's your core. And so his... His vocabulary was very different than mine. So I thought, well, I was brought in to drive change. I know exactly what the change needs to be. The board's bought off on this strategy. I've got, you know, my product partner and to some degree my sales partner um, lined up to go forward with this. And yet the language that I was using was educational. Like I was trying to educate the company and especially him on what was necessary and how we needed to go about doing it. And I was using my words. And so <clears throat> what was fascinating was he couldn't grasp. I mean, he's a smart guy, right? Went to UPenn, like, you know, Ivy League, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, clearly successful. But I learned that I had to kind of put everything in his context and in, in, in the way in which he thought. And the, and the words in, in which he used and the competitiveness within which he operated day in and day out. It was like, did you go to work out this morning? Yeah. How many push-ups did you do? Like, it was that kind of conversation all the time. Oh, you went skiing? What'd you skate? Uh-huh. Black diamond? Uh-huh. What about double black? Like, it was that kind of conversation. Like, so, and I'm bringing in these terms that, like, because they never really had somebody like me in, in this role before. 
So I'm bringing in all this language and all these ideas and all this stuff. And I could feel like I could just, I could just never sense that he was like, yeah, this is great, right? This is exactly what everybody else did, like, like standing ovations at company meetings, but like he didn't. And so the lesson I learned there was I needed to reframe it for him. And I'll tell you what I did. That, that was the moment. So we had a strategy meeting. It was a classic strategy meeting, which was everybody bringing up the same old stuff, right? I mean, I was just like rolling my eyes. Like the, basically the future of the business was at stake. Like it was that big a deal. And so I'm, I have to do something dramatic and I have to do something that will appeal to his sense of pride and competitiveness. <laughs> so I opened my presentation with a press release that was, in fact, a story in the Wall Street Journal. So we literally created the story and used the masthead of the Wall Street Journal to make it feel like it was real. And I said, I just have one thing to say. We have a choice. What we choose to do today is going to result in one of two outcomes. This is outcome one. If we do all the stuff you all have just been talking about, right, and keep doing the same old thing. And the press release basically said, you know, company XYZ <clears throat> declares bankruptcy, files chapter 11. And it was like you read the words. I mean, it looked real, quoted people, you know, after, you know, a great run of 12 years, failed to, you know, adapt and change, failed to take advantage of this new opportunity, blah, blah, blah. And I said, so there's that. But that's not how I am here. That's not what I believe. And I think that's not what you all in your hearts want to see happen to this company. And I said, so this is the other outcome. And then I presented the next one, which was, you know, company XYZ rebounds, you know, with a pivot to, you know, blah, 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 and has seen, you know, record results now at a highest valuation company history, whatever, right? And I said, so you always have to start with the end in mind. So which is the end that you all want? A or B. And everybody said, you know, B. I said, okay, well, this is what it's going to take. And it was like, at that point, I got him to agree to get everybody on the management team, the leadership team, which was now like 25 people, right? Top people in a 4,000 person company. I got the CEO to agree because I had pre-planned it, um, but I needed him to feel it. I got him to agree to issue business, new business cards for everybody in the room. It was a move that had been done once before by Andy Grove, but he got up on stage and he goes, all right, that's what we're after. And all of you were here the whole time and you never made this move, so you're all fired. Get the hell out of here. Go out there. And there's just like, what? And I'm like, ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I'm only razzing you, cuz. And he says, no, I'm serious. You know, get the fuck out of the room, basically, is what he said. And come back in here in an hour. And when they walked in the room, they were handed a box, and it was their new cards. And it was like a new title, right? And I said, you need to become a different person. You need to think differently. And from that moment, like, he was behind it. That's amazing. <laughs> That's such a great story. That's legendary. Uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, a million things to unpack there. I think that the idea of the future state, 
you know, tying it back to what we've seen with Succession, that so clearly we see them not showing a future state that they want, whether it's Siobhan or Logan or any of these people. Like, Logan doesn't know what he wants to do. They just want to, quote-unquote, like, be in charge or be the one or whatever. And that's it. There's no future state. And that's like the CEO that you're talking about. Like, yeah, I want to double revenue. It's like, yeah, that's great. That's not realistically the future state that we're talking about here. Great business strategy. And Tom, I'm curious, like, you know, you hear people talk about the sort of inception level, getting them to think of the idea that's yours, you know, and present it back to you. I mean, were you doing things like that? You know, like, for example, we at Caspian, we have this like portfolio-based marketing philosophy where it's like people building multiple shows that fit multiple personas. And this is something that we're like trying to evangelize and get people to understand that like companies are already doing this now. They're some of the best marketing companies. Lots of people are not doing this now. In fact, they don't even have a single series or anything like that. But like to get people to say your words, to get people to do that is still a bridge too far. And so I'm just curious, like, how do you think about getting that inception moment to like first say it in their words and then get them to say the thing that you want them to say? Well, so in this case, he was able to articulate what his frustration was at where the company was, like when it got him to open up, right? He was able to articulate his frustration. Again, it came from a sales background a very competitive individual, as I explained earlier, right? And and I said, well, what? I said, what is it? What is it that really bothers you? And he said, we don't have a seat at the big table. We deserve a seat at the big table. And I said, who's at the big table? And he's like, you know, and it was like all the enterprise class software companies, CRM and ERP and supply chain management at the time. So you got Oracle and you got Salesforce and you got SAP and others. He said, like this thing that we're doing here, an enterprise approach to product development, that deserves a seat at the table. We deserve a seat at the table. So that, that the Arctic, and you can see the visual already, right? So that was like front and center always. He actually didn't care as much about how we were going to make that happen as long as we were driving to that. And so I also knew, given his competitive nature, and I also knew what was required to actually really shift the mindset of the marketplace at the time, which was in a period possibly worse than we're in right now. It was post 9-11, like literally. And you talk about like uncertainty. Is the world going to blow up? Like what is going on here? Like stop spending, companies trying to cut their way to value. And we had a value creation play. So like that, we fed into that. But like I said, he, as long as we were doing things to get ourselves a seat at the big table, then he was, he was bought in. And because he was so competitive and because I knew we needed to radically shift the mindset of the marketplace because they weren't going to think about this because they didn't really even understand it. It was product lifecycle management, right? Most people didn't understand that because it was brand new. And only three of the Fortune 500 had a chief product officer at the time. And so I created this campaign, talking about content, around the idea of product first. You're a product first company. Well, if you're a product first company, you understand that you put the product at the center of everything you do. 
And I knew it was controversial. I knew it would foster a debate. And I'm like, come on, let's have the debate. If we're having the debate, we're in the conversation. And so we were purposely poking at things like, you know, people say, say it's customer is king. Well, in order to develop great winning products, you have to know what the customers want. They have Wall Street saying it's all about profit first. Well, if you're doing it right, this is a way that you're going to drive great profit, right? People are talking about it's about people, McKinsey. It's all about the people. Well, if you do it right, you can have the right people in the right roles. And the most important people in a change agenda, which is what I think the team, the family uh, of succession failed to recognize is there are other people that can influence the outcomes, right? That can help you, that can increase your odds of success, that you don't necessarily do it alone. People would do well to remember there's going to be a new sheriff in town. And so one of the very, very first things we did was we, and this was like three months, maybe after four months after I started, I was told, hey, Tom, you know, we've got this analyst day happening on February 12th. You should probably participate in that in some way. Yeah, we've got like 85 industry analysts and Wall Street analysts coming for three and a half hours where we get to tell our story. And I'm like, oh, my God, like we have to capitalize on this moment. And when they walked in, they found posters. And there was a poster of a Christmas tree with presents underneath it. And it said, children don't wake up on Christmas morning in the hopes of unwrapping a CRM system. There was a, you know, a guy sitting on a motorcycle with tattoos. And, and it said, an ERP system never inspired a tattoo. Like, it was like, it's the product, stupid, right? And it was just so fundamental and then we had that debate thing going with product first that it just caused people to like go, maybe there's something to this anyway. But that was how we got people's attention and we got people to embrace it because you can feel it like as a consumer, right? We took it out of the whole B2B, you know, nomenclature and we just made people like, yeah, I can, that's, that's fundamentally true. <laughs> how do you pitch those cool ideas? I mean, it seems like if you already have that, that much level of buy-in, then maybe that's a little easier. But I'd imagine that still when you bring the big ticket item to them, that you're still going to get some some eyebrows raised. Yeah, I mean, for sure. So you, you can't present the idea of doing something. You actually have to present it. Like, you just have to show it. As somebody once said to me repeatedly, people don't have any imagination. And so you need to tell the story. They just, you need to have them experience the story. And then you can refine it and all that. But you need to show them something. Right. You need to bring it to life. You just have to. Any other, you know, pieces of advice either there or any other like examples of how you could show stuff to to pitch big ideas, to pitch the cool stuff? Let's define cool stuff. Right. So cool stuff is, you know, I don't know, call it sort of classic communications. Right. And some of the work we do, I think, is really cool. Right. So the work we did, like at this company in particular that I was referencing, was like actually really, really cool. Like to the point where when we exposed it to some of the most hardened, difficult to change culture, people just like stood up and applauded. But the hard part was in order to get to that place that you just felt and saw and experienced in that 90 second video we just created, you have to change how you do what you do. And that was the creation of what I call the value roadmap because when we said over here that what matters most is like the product, 
And it's going to be how you get out of this rut of this uncertain time and this company's going to change. Nobody had the playbook on how to win. How does an enterprise actually create product like an enterprise? Because you only had three of the Fortune 500 had chief product officers. And so we literally invested in deep research, a ton of experience, a ton of conversations with customers. And we built out the way to create and capture value with products. And so we went from selling feature function to kind of people with hands-on keyboards to selling a value creation playbook to executives. And that value roadmap lasted, I don't know, 15, 18 years. It was so fundamental. And that became the basis of retraining the sales force. It became the basis of how we went to market. It just shifted everything. Nobody on succession is dealing with the outcome or pointing to the outcome, pointing to the risk. Nobody in succession has a path. Nobody in succession has a, has a playbook. Good, fine. Nobody here has any glaring substance abuse issues that almost brought down the company, right? They're just trying to advocate for themselves, and that's why it always fails. Well, I think that so often we're pitching a CFO or a CEO or somebody who is similar to Logan in a lot of ways, where they are in denial. They're in denial about their longevity. They're in denial about their health. They're in denial about where the business is at. That's Logan, right? It's like, it's like, dude, you're gonna die. Are you gonna f-ing cry? And like, your health is failing. You need to figure out a succession plan. You can't just keep playing the game until the bitter end. That's not a winning strategy. You know, in many ways you can, I mean, aside from his own, you know, character flaws, of which there are many, there's no clarity uh, about like who can actually do this job, right? He has no confidence. And so the only way that he can get anything is to just sort of play one against the other while he continues to maintain like his own view of the world. Nobody shifted his mindset. Yeah, I think it's so hard to pitch somebody like Logan an idea because they are set in their ways and they are set in the way that it's always been done. I was sent by Roman to burn some sage. And to your point earlier, it's like if you pitch them sort of your tactics, they don't either know or care or have any frame of reference there. And you're not pitching that sort of like outcome and layering those things in. So I'm curious, like when you are pitching a content initiative, how do you go about sort of layering in those tactics and layering in those decisions when the end person doesn't necessarily really care, especially when they prickle at some of the tactics that you are choosing? What we did really early once we had this really different way of how a salesperson would would approach their job was to put it in the hands of people who we thought got it. They were like, oh my God, I have this. I could do so much more if I had this. And so in one particular case, one of those individuals who you actually know stood up on stage at one of these like sales kickoffs and basically said, I took this thing and I'm like, well, what in the hell is this? And then when I dug into it, I realized, oh my God, this is going to change how I go about doing what I'm going to do. And I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm a business alchemist. And that's exactly what has happened in the last six months. I just have one message for you. If you don't embrace this, you're not going to be here next year. Guarantee it. This is what's going to make a difference. This is what's going to work. And here's why, blah, 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 right? 
And here's the thing, you know, it's not just about the idea and like the logic and the like the compelling evidence and all of that. It takes a certain type of an individual who you know can actually make it work. He asked me to run the company. I'm kidding. So that that sometimes requires real part change, which is we don't have the right people. And if really at the at that point you might have you have to make those calls, right? I mean, there are, I would say, a large swath of salespeople who don't care about content marketing at all, don't care about your content posture at all. They care about sales collateral and enablement and they care about leads. And so, you know, bringing a forward-thinking CRO or somebody like that who, I mean, obviously you presented the case in a way that made it sort of like you have to adopt this. It's like really hard. Like, what do you do if the VP of sales is a marketing skeptic and especially a content marketing skeptic? Well, it happens all the time. The language I try to use is that, look, all that we're trying to do is increase your odds of being successful. And so, you know, there is no direct line between, you know, A and B. Like, you have to warm the market, you have to seed the market, you have to get other voices out there. There will be a series of things that we will do that will help do that. And at the end of the day, then, yeah, your team has its core content that they use to do their thing. But we're just trying to put you in a position to be more successful. And, you know, we're, we welcome feedback. So come on in. And I welcome that input, right? So I try to bring them in closer and, and things like that. So Tom, if if you're sitting out there and you're a, a, a marketing leader or, or someone who's trying to get a content initiative off the ground, it seems like painting that picture of the future state, you know, what does this series look like once you've hit 50 episodes and 100,000, you know, views and all that stuff? And it seems like we, we don't really do that with in the content world very often. And then also how your brand message is in each and every single piece of that, that all of that is, you know, filling in the cracks of every place on the internet, not even the cracks on the internet, the cracks in your buyer's lives. Like, where are they seeing this core message that is new to them? Is that fair? Yeah. It's very fair. I, look, I think the fundamental, the fundamental thing that needs to be done is get out of a slide deck and actually like create stuff and show what that's like and talk about how various things are used in different scenarios and, and can be used in different ways to do different things, all of which are designed to, in total, right, to get to this, this place. There's nothing like seeing that, feeling it, experiencing it there's just nothing there's nothing like it tom this has been absolutely awesome as always you're the best thank you well that's it for today i hope you got some good ideas for your b2b content thank you for listening to remarkable i'm ian Faison, ceo of caspian studios remarkable is created by the team at caspian studios b2b podcast as a service Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, Anika Das, B2B content marketing manager, 
and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.